good morning. If you would, as we're getting ready this morning, be opening your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll finish up this letter this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, as we look at this final chapter in the book, 2 Corinthians, written by the Apostle Paul. It's, a, it's amazing to me how sometimes we have a hard time letting go of things, of moving on from stuff in our life. You, I don't know if you guys struggle with this, but I, I know like a couple of weeks ago, I, on my Facebook thing, you know how it has this many years ago on this day, whatever. Well, there was a picture that came up of the day that uh, Crystal and I and the family were traveling to North Carolina moving out there. And there was a picture of Josiah sitting in a, in a subway that we stopped at on the way over there. And, and I was looking at it, and I was like, Josiah, do you remember this day? Look at this day. This was a great day, you know. And I was like, you don't remember? You, you rode in the, the Pinsky truck with me out there. And he's like, no, Dad, I really don't. And, and Zoe's sitting there, and she goes, I didn't get to ride in the truck. And, I mean, we're talking, she's not even, she's barely a year old, and she's not even, let, like, she doesn't even remember it, but she's not letting it go. She's not moving on past that. And, and I, I just wonder how many times in our own lives are there things in our lives that we sort of need to move past, that we sort of need to let go and say, you know what, it, it's time for me to move on. But how? How do you move on? How do you move on after you've said everything that needs to be said, after you've done everything that you can do, after everything's all said and done, how do you move past that hurt? How do you move past that pain, that struggle, that, that event, that word that was spoken, that temptation that just keeps coming up in your life? How do you move past that? Well, as we come to the end of the, the letter of Second Corinthians, Paul the Apostle, he's writing, remember, these are not nice people that Paul's writing to. These are folks who have hurt Paul probably more deeply than anybody else we read about in the New Testament. Because he invested in them. He gave of himself to them. He loved them so deeply. He was vulnerable with them. He opened himself up to them, and they just uh, ate him alive, basically. They, they uh, allowed him to be... Uh, they called his integrity into question. They called the gospel into question. They called his apostleship into question. They basically took for granted everything this man had ever done for them. And so he's writing to them in the most passionate words. As we walk through this, we've saw time after time after time how hard it is sometimes to understand this letter because it's written so passionately from this man who is hurt so deeply. So how did he move past what they had done to him? How did he continue to love them? How did he move on with his life? Well, the, the answer very simply this morning, I don't want to be too simplistic for us, but it really is the power of Christ. It really is the power of the gospel that allowed him to move past it. And so if you would look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and we'll begin with the very first, uh, our first part of verse 4. And I just want to look at the first half of this verse this morning, and then we'll look at the rest of it as we move on. But Paul, speaking about the, the person of Jesus Christ, as he's talking about the power of Christ in the life of these people, he says this, he says, For he, speaking of Jesus, was crucified in weakness but lives by the power of God. We pray with me? Father, I pray that as we open up your word, as we study your word, as we hear from your word, God, that you would speak in us, that you would speak through me this morning, God, that you would speak from your word to your people. And God, that we would receive it and that we would 
act upon it and that we would be obedient to you, God, that we would submit to you and that we would follow you as we leave here today. Bless us now, Lord, uh, with your grace and your presence, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so first, I want us to see the power of Christ on display in the cross. I want us to see how we see the power of Jesus in the the cross. he, He says that Jesus was crucified in weakness. As he's talking to these people and he's describing Christ's power, he backs up and he says, well, let, let me first say that he was crucified in weakness. And in so doing, he sort of gives us a definition of what he means by weakness. Think about this, guys. Was Jesus put on the cross because he was weak? Like, have you not ever heard Loretta Lynn? He could have called 10,000 angels, right? I mean, he could have called 10,000 angels at any moment to destroy the world. He, he could have done any number of things. You think about Peter as he pulls out a sword and he ends up cutting off a dude's ear. He said, Peter, put the sword up. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. This is, I'm not leaving this moment. My Father has brought me to this moment. You think about it as Jesus stands in front of Pilate, the man charged with sentencing him. He stands and he looks Pilate in the eye and Pilate is talking to him and asking him to defend himself and he's not saying anything. Jesus is not. And so Pilate says, dude, don't you know? I have the power to set you free. And Jesus says, no, you don't. You don't have any power except the power which has been given to you. You see, Jesus was not outsmarted by Judas and the Pharisees. He was not outpowered by the Romans. He went to the cross willingly. So when Paul says here that Jesus was crucified in weakness, he doesn't mean that Jesus went to the cross because he had no other choice. He means that, well, if you back all the way up to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is in the cross, and as he's contemplating, hanging on the cross and paying for our sins, as he's contemplating, and he's looking into the cup, and he sees God's wrath that's going to be poured out on him in our place. He says, Father, remove this cup from me. If there's any possibility, any other way for these people to be redeemed, for these people to be saved, remove this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will be done but yours. The weakness that Paul is talking about, guys, is a willing obedience to the Father's will. It is a meekness that says, God, you are in control and I am not. That the very first place we see the power of Christ this morning in our lives is as we willingly submit to the Father's will, even as he did. Jesus submitted to the Father's will and therefore he went to the cross. And so we must Make sure that as we uh, seek God's power in our lives, we submit to His will. And, and, and not only that, you think about the weakness in which Christ was crucified, humanly speaking. You think about as He's hanging on the cross, as He's struggling to breathe, as He's getting ready to take His final breath, as these people are walking by and spitting on Him and, and accusing Him and doing all these horrible things to Him. What does He say? Does He come down on them with wrath? No, He says, Father, forgive them they know not what they do. Forgiveness is seen in the crucifixion. Jesus in his weakness allows these people to mistreat him. As you think about the gospels and you see this unfold, as you think about the people standing at the foot of the cross, as they're making fun of him, as they're calling him names and spitting on him, you think, man, I would really like to hurt those people. How dare they treat Jesus that way? As you think about the Pharisees making fun of him and saying, oh, he said he could rebuild Jerusalem. I mean, he could rebuild the temple in three days. Surely he can get down off the cross. You think, man, how foolish. 
As you think about the two men hanging on either side of Jesus, the thieves who are getting their just rewards for the, pun, for the, the lifestyle that they had lived, and they're even hurling insults on him. You think, man, how, how foolish you're about to die, and you're making fun of the man who says that he can save you. But then we take a step back and we think about the way that we have mistreated the Savior, the way that we've made fun of His sacrifice by the way that we live our lives, by the way that we uh, uh, don't serve Him when we should, by the way that we treat people around us, by the things we say, by the way that we claim to believe but then don't walk in obedience. You see, very often we're reminded that we need the same grace that these people who were standing at the foot of the cross needed. And it is this grace that he offers us for our sins. And it is in this grace that he is crucified for our sins. That he offers us this forgiveness. But not only that, you notice that he says, at the, the second part of this, but lives by the power of God. Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? He raised from the grave. God moved the stone, and he lives now forever by the power of God to make intercession for the saints. And it is this resurrection power that he offers uh, to us, his people, this new life so that we can say as we walk through this book of 2 Corinthians, the old has gone, the new has come. We can live a new life because we've been raised from the dead, spiritually speaking, through the cross of Christ. Because just as our Savior died and was raised again, so one day too we will die and be raised again. But even now, we walk as He, as he has given us life to walk in Him. We walk in the newness of life. And so it is in this weakness that we walk, it is in this power that we walk in the sense that we rely 100% on His strength to make it through. That we submit to His will in a humble obedience that says, Father, not my will, but Yours be done. And it's this backdrop that sets the stage for how we walk in power. And so the first part here, we see the power of Christ displayed in the cross. And then as we see that, as we walk in the, the power of the cross, then we see the power of Christ displayed in our own lives. We see this in the second half of verse 4. He says, Paul goes on and he says, For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we'll, we'll we will live with him by the power of God. Paul says when it comes to you people, uh, I'm going to deal with you according to the power of God. As God works in my life. And so through our relationships, we see the, the, the power of Christ displayed in the way that we treat one another. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but the way that we treat one another, the way that we live with one another, that's not our decision. We are called to live gospel relationships. We're called to live according to the power of God. Now, there's one sense in which Paul means judgment. He means that, hey, listen, just because you haven't received punishment yet for your sins doesn't mean it's not coming. He's kind of hammered that over and over again that when I show up, if you're not doing what I told you to do, you're not going to like me very much. You're not going to appreciate my visit very much if you're still living in sin, if you're still living in immorality, then you won't like me showing up. But it's deeper than that, isn't it? Like, like guys, if, if we read this and we think, oh yeah, somebody's about to get a spanking, like, you know, when you're a kid, and you're like, get him, mama, get him, and you hope somebody else gets a whipping because it makes you feel better. That's not necessarily what Paul is aiming at here. You think about it. If he's walking in the power of the, the cross, and he's walking in the power of God towards these people, what sort of power did Jesus display on the cross? As these people rebuked him, as they made fun of him, as he's dying, what did he do? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Or, or, or even after the resurrection, you think about the man Thomas, one of Jesus' best friends who walked with him for three and a half years. And, and the, the other disciples said, hey, Jesus is risen from the dead. Come, let, let me tell you about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And what does Thomas' his disciples say? Unless I can put my finger in the wounds, unless I can see him with my own two eyes, I'm not going to believe. So how does Jesus respond to that? He shows up and he says, hey, Thomas, come put your finger in the hole." Come put your hand to my side where the spear was. Because I don't want you to go on unbelieving. I want you to believe. To which Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Guys, that's what it means to, to have gospel relationships where we are not so much concerned with dealing out punishment as we are dealing out the power of God to see people's lives changed. Paul makes that clear over and over again. His goal in showing up at the Corinthians' doorstep is not to lay the hammer down on them. His goal, in fact, he says in verse 10 later on, my goal in writing this letter is so that when I show up, we can rejoice in your, in your repentance, basically. We can rejoice in the power of the gospel to change your life. Our relationships are based on the power of the gospel to change people's lives. As we deal with one another, our job isn't to beat people down, it's to lift people up. It's to build people up over and over again. He tells them that my power that God has given me is for raising you up, not tearing you down. It's for your restoration. It's for your spiritual growth. And so as we walk in the power of God, we begin to see God work in the people's lives around us as we display the, the power of God in our own lives. But Paul then in verse 5, he tells us how we can see the power of God in our lives. In verse 5 he says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or you, do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Now very quickly, we need to point out, Paul does not say, examine the person sitting next to you on the pew. Which is way more comfortable, right? Well, let me tell you, God, they got some issues. right? We always joke about that, how we always, are, after a service, would be like, man, so-and-so should have been here to hear that this morning. We're really good at putting off uh, on other people what we feel like they need to hear when what we should be doing is examining our own lives. Otherwise, we may come before God confessing other people's sins while we have huge ones in our own lives. Last night, I, I was um, helping or watching Crystal cook dinner, whichever way you want to take it. and um, It turned out good, so I was mostly watching. But, but uh, as, I was, as I was standing in the kitchen with her, I... Uh, the kids were supposed to be reading, you know, kind of get out of the way so you don't get burnt, so we don't, you know, have a, you know, major issue in the kitchen. And so the kids are in the, in the living room reading, and so he's like, Dad, 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 Bubba's not reading. And, and I look down there, and neither is Zoe. Like, there's not a book even close to her. Her book's all the way across the room. At least Josiah's is sitting on the couch next to him. I'm like, Zoe, are you trying to get both of y'all spanking? I mean, what's going on here? That's not how it works. Just because you tell on him doesn't mean you're out of trouble. But I'm afraid that's what we think sometimes. Well, I'm going to tell on them, God, don't worry about what I'm doing. Seems like Jesus said something about that, didn't he? Don't worry about the sawdust in your brother's eye until you get the log out of your own. But it's so much easier to see the sawdust in theirs. Because it doesn't hurt near as bad. Or, you know, when we get busted out, when we get in trouble, when people point out things in our lives, what do we typically do? Do we respond well to that? What do we typically do if we're totally honest, even if we don't say it out loud? Well, I remember last year, you weren't acting so right either. 
You remember, you remember what you said that one time? Mm-hmm. Trying to come down on me. You ain't so perfect either, bub. Right? I, I mean, that's the way we respond because we don't like our imperfections or sin, whichever word you prefer there, to come out in the light. And so we try to put it off on other people. Paul's like, y'all so worried about me, you need to kind of look at your own self. You need to examine your own self been so busy worrying about what I'm doing and where I'm at and where I'm going and what I'm doing. What about you? Focus on you. But, but he, the way that he phrases it here, I mean, Paul is just so much nicer than I am because the way that he phrases it here is to see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves, or you, do you not realize this about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you? The whole way in the Greek that this is phrased is not... Uh, I'm, I'm worried that he's not in you. It's phrased as in, I'm sure he is in you. If you remember the opening of the letter even, he says, I know I'm going to see you guys in heaven one day. It's a question, it's almost like a rhetorical question. Don't you know that Jesus is living in you? You can ask this question with confidence. It's not him trying to que- get them to question their salvation. Rather, it's him trying to get them to see that Jesus is actually at work in their lives. He's fully confident that Jesus is at work in their lives. He's confident that Jesus, as they examine themselves and they test themselves, they're going to see Jesus. It's sort of like if somebody's scared about taking a test and you look at them and say, man, you, got, you know the answers. Just write them down. Paul says, look at your life and realize that Jesus is at work. Of course, we take this and we want to use this not necessarily to examine our own lives and test our own lives, but to see if other people are in the faith, Right? But no, that's not what he means by this at all. In fact, I I mean, you think about this. I was thinking about this uh, as I was thinking through this passage. I mean, who in their right mind, if they don't want to be following Jesus, if they're not attempting to follow Jesus, would examine their life to see whether or not they're following Jesus? Like if you, and, and that's what it's about, right? I mean, Paul doesn't get to the end of his letter where he's just told us that our righteousness, our standing with God is based on what Christ has done, not on what we do, to say, oh, by the way, you better test your life and make sure you're living good enough in order to merit heaven. No. He means, are you in the faith? Are you pursuing Christ? If you're pursuing Christ, you're going to see Him at work in your life. Who in their right mind is going to say, man, I'm going to try and pursue Christ. I'm going to try and follow Christ. Who's not following Christ? Unless, of course, you fail the test. In other words, uh, unless you actually aren't trying to follow Jesus, then that is a problem. Because again, who's following Jesus that's not following Jesus? Kind of can't, right? It's kind of impossible to follow someone you're not following. And, And so Paul is saying, look in your life, examine your life. Not compare yourself to the people down the pew from you. Don't look at them and say, man, they're so much closer to Jesus than I am. I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. That's not what he says here. Like if he was trying to set up a test for us, he would have given us some answers and questions. Like, but he leaves it ambiguous, he leaves it unclear, because the point is, is that we all see Jesus at work in our lives differently. We're all on different parts of our journey with him if we're following him. Now, if we're not following him, yeah, then we're not going to see him at work in our lives. But if we're pursuing him, we're going to see him at work. Not, man, you know, he's not working in me like he's working in them. Okay, but that doesn't mean you, he loves you any less. And so he says, examine yourself, not compare yourself. That's two totally different things, isn't it? Like there's no curve here. It's just about following Christ. 
And so ask yourself, are you following Jesus? Look in your life and look at where he is at work. And what this does is this gives you some confidence. It says, oh yeah, I am following Jesus. Look at what he's done. No, I'm not what I ought to be. No, I'm not where I should be. But man, I'm not where I was either. Look how far down the road I am. Look how, far, how much he's worked in my life. Not, man, I, I don't measure up to those other people down at the church. I don't measure up to those other people who are following Jesus. That's not what he says to do. He says, examine yourself and see where Christ is at work. And as you do that, what you're going to realize is that Paul is a true apostle. And look at verse 6 and 7. He says, I hope you will find out that we have, uh, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, that we may seem to have failed. And so we see, as we see in our own life that Christ is at work, then we begin to see in other people's life where Christ is at work. Paul is deeply troubled. He wants to make sure that these people are following Jesus. And he says, by the way, if you're following Jesus, don't forget who told you that gospel. I hope you see that I actually am a, a true prophet or a true apostle of God. But he moves on from that and he says, but listen, that's, that's not why I want you to see this. I'm praying that God would work in you and that you would do right. I'm praying for you guys, which is a big deal. Like we sort of expect Paul to always be perfect, right? He's a man of God. He's an apostle. He should never make a mistake. We expect him to hold to a certain standard. But the truth is he's still a man, right? And these people have heard him worse than anybody else has ever heard him. And he says, I'm praying that God would work in your life. I'm praying that God would minister to you and that God would grow you and that we would see enormous blessings in your life. Now be honest. If that's you, is that what you're praying? Or are you praying more like David, Lord, destroy my enemies? Right? I mean, there's, I mean if you're truly honest this morning, do you pray honestly for those who have hurt you, for those who have wronged you? Do you pray honestly that God would work in their life? Or do you hope that they get what's coming to them? Paul says, I'm praying that you would get back on track and that you'd be a blessing to those around you. Not for my gain, but for yours. And then you notice at the end of verse 7, he says, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do uh, what, what is right, though we may seem to have failed. You remember one of the things that the, the Corinthians had said about Paul? That he's a telephone tough guy? That from a distance he had big words, but then when he showed up, he was all, you know, flowers and roses and nice to him. Well, if they clean up and they do what they're supposed to do, what's going to happen when Paul shows up? What are his, the false teachers going to begin to say? Told you he talks a big game from a, from a distance, but when he shows up, all he wants to do is hug your neck and kiss you. And so he says, I, I don't care. I don't care what they think of me. I would rather you live right than me have to show up and, and get some, you know, uh, get serious with you. And so he says, it's not for my gain, it's for yours. It's not so that I will be vindicated, it's so that you can worship God more freely and so that you can worship him more fully. But you notice also in verses 8 and 9 that it's not for vengeance but for restoration. And he says, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are strong, when we are weak and you are strong, your restoration is what we pray for. Paul wasn't after an apology. He wasn't after fairness. He wasn't after, you know, them, them vindicating his name. He was after them growing in Christ. 
I wonder how often, guys, we, we want people to grow in Christ. We want people to clean up their act so we'll feel comfortable around them. Or so that they'll get on board with us and they won't offend us with their, their way of thinking anymore. Or so that they'll finally fess up and give us a proper apology. Or that, so we can finally use that I told you so we've been saving up for the last 20 years. Like, finally, I get to tell you, see? See, I told you. I told you you was wrong. You know you've got some of those. Let's be honest. Or are we seriously praying? God, work in their lives. I want to see them grow in you. I want to see them restored to where they're walking with you. Not give me vengeance. Not pay them back. But no, Lord, I want to see the power of the gospel at work in their lives. And as you pray for them, what's going to happen? The power of the gospel is going to be at work in your lives. And you'll be set free from that resentment. You'll be set free from that bitterness. You'll be set free to move on. And forget about what was behind so that you can press on to what's in front of you so you won't stay bitter, so you won't stay angry. Guys, it's really hard to be angry at someone in your life. It's really hard to stay mad at them when you're praying that the Lord would restore them, when you're praying that the Lord would forgive them. And, and he says, oh, have you forgiven them? Oh, have you moved past it? Well, no, actually, I was kind of hoping that they would get right with you and then they would come tell me they were sorry and grovel at my feet. Right? I mean, isn't that what we pray for? But no, Lord, I pray that you would restore them. I pray that you would uh, cause them to grow in you. And what happens? The anger begins to leave. You begin to walk with him. You begin to walk in his power. And, and guys, they no longer have any power over you. That anger no longer has any power over you. You're actually able to move past it. But as long as you continue to pray, God, I, I, want, them, I want it to be fair. I want them to get what's coming. You're going to be held captive. You give them to the Lord. And, and so Paul is actually seriously concerned with their spiritual well-being, not with things being fair or right. And, and I, I want to finish with 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11 this morning because I want us to see where this power is ultimately displayed, where the, almost sort of like the, the place where we plug in for this power is displayed. It's through His church. Christ's power is displayed through His church. Look at verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. You can't ultimately see Christ's power in your life apart, of, apart from being a part of His community, the church. Apart from being a part of His people, your true strength and power in Christ won't. It's going to be really hard to see. You notice that He says brothers or brothers and sisters. He calls them family. Guys, he hasn't disowned this group of people. He hasn't said, you know what, I'm done with y'all. Y'all have hurt me. I'm finished. No, he says, you're, you're still my family. Even when you hurt me. Even when you do stuff that makes me cry. Even when you do stuff that breaks my heart. I'm a sti we're still part of the same family. He writes this letter to this group of people and he ends it by reminding them that they are family. These people that should have honored him instead dishonored him. And he says, hey, listen, we are family. Because we, we have a family this morning. We have a family to rejoice with. He says, rejoice, be happy. It's okay to be happy at church. It's okay to have fun at church. It's okay to raise our hands and praise the good God who has saved us together as we gather and we rejoice to the one who has redeemed us. We ought to be the happiest people in the world. 
We actually have a relationship with people in our life who love us, not because we work at the same job, not because we like the same sports, not because we have the same last name, but because we serve the same Savior and whose blood unites us, which is stronger than any other bond in this universe. We ought to be more happy than anyone when we gather in this place. Our relationships aren't built on the things of this world. They're built on the blood of Jesus. We ought to be able to rejoice together no matter what we face. We ought to be family no matter what we face. He goes on and he says, not only that, not only are you family, not only do you rejoice, but you aim for restoration. You aim at setting things right. You aim at making things as God would have them to be. You allow yourself to be made right. You allow things to be made as God would have them to be. Not I'm getting mine. Not they need to be punished. But God, I want to see them restored. I want to see them walking with you. And then he says, be encouraged or, and comfort one another. Agree with one another. Be in unity. How important is it to have that comfort and that encouragement in our lives from our church family? I, I, last night, I was uh, thinking through, back through this passage, thinking back through this sermon. And I was sitting here at this part and... and um, the kids were playing, and they, they, Zoe had on her princess dress, her little, I, I, I kind of think of it as the fairy godmother dress, kind of what it looks like, you know, it's too big for her, and she's wearing it, and she's sort of gliding around the, the house, as only she can do. And um, I'm sitting here, and I'm looking at, at this passage. I look up at her, and then I turn back, and I'm looking at it again, and I feel her little arm come around me and give me a hug, and she kisses me on the cheek, and she looks at me, and then she just sort of glides away, man, I think that's kind of what this feels like. Just that warming of your spirit. Not necessarily that people always have the right answers, because they don't, right? I mean, sometimes when people try to say something to comfort you, it actually comes out a lot worse than if they would have not said anything at all. Am I right? I mean, we've all been there. We've all said stuff trying to comfort people. We're like, wait, I'm pretty sure that didn't do what I wanted it to do. But we can look past that, can't we? And say, they actually care enough to say something like that to me. Like they actually care enough to try to get into my business and get into my life and find out how they can help, how they can serve me. That happens when you become a part of a family, doesn't it? That happens when you become a part of Christ's community. And that's where you see His power at work. When you feel like you can't make another step, when you feel like you've got nothing left to give, as people come alongside you and say, hey, I, I'll help you. Even if you feel like you don't have anything left to give, you can look to the person next to you and say, I can help you too. Let's do this together. Not only that, he says, agree with one another. Be unified. Have the same mind. Have the same purpose. Have the same goal. And we're not saying that unity is the absence of diversity, especially not diversity of opinion. We're always going to have a diversity of opinion. I guarantee you. I mean, if we did a poll this morning, I'm sure that we would find out that we're split on what temperature it should be in here at every, any given time. I guarantee you we will. That's just part of it. That's part of dwelling together. We're going to have difference of opinion. That doesn't mean we're not unified. That doesn't mean we're not of the same goal and of the same purpose. Our goal is very simple, to glorify the Lord God in this entire world as we dwell together in love, sharing the good news as we go. That's it. That's our goal. That's our purpose. Now, how we meet our goal, well, that's where 
gets a little tricky, right? That's where we have disagreement. That's okay. Disagreement is good. You only disagree with, disagree with folks you care enough about to disagree with, right? If you don't care, you're not going to say anything. It don't matter. It'll be gone in a few minutes anyway. But somebody you actually care about, you're going to disagree with them if you disagree. But we do so in love and we do so in unity. Be, be at peace with one another. And then, but Paul ends with this, and, and I, I said I was going to end, but this is how I'm going to end. Uh, if you look at the last part of verse 11, he says, And the God of love and peace will be with you. He adds in, And the God of love and peace. God's agape, God's peace. He's talking about us living in love and living in peace. And he says, and I know, I know for sure if there's ever a church that can't live together in love and peace without God, it's you people. So I'm praying that y'all would have some love and peace from God on high. No, I don't know if he really said it that way, but that's how I would say it if I was writing to these folks because they did. They struggled constantly. They're always fighting. They're fighting over who the best preacher is. They're fighting over what they should be doing. They're fighting over who speaks in tongues better. I mean, they fight over everything. And he says, you can't do it on your own can't dwell together in unity on your own you need god's love you need god's peace and it's only through his power it's only through his strength that you will ever dwell together in love and peace ask yourself this morning are you allowing god to work in you to show his love and show his peace to his people as you look at your life and you say man I can't figure out. I can't figure out why I can't get things together. I can't figure out every time I try and get things leaned up and going in the right direction, things fall back apart. Ask yourself, are, are, are you truly committed to his people? Are you truly committed to his community? So that when you begin to fall over, somebody can come along and push you back up. Somebody can come along and put their arm around you and say, hey, it's going to be okay. Are you doing that for the folks in your life? Are you coming alongside them and saying, hey, it's going to be okay? It's going to be okay. Are you offering those awkward things that you probably shouldn't have said to begin with because you actually care. Where, where, where do you need to grow this morning, guys? What, what is going on in your life that you need to move on from? Is it some temptation? Is it some old fight? Is it some old anger? Is it some sin in your life you just can't seem to get over? Maybe it's in this moment and in this time you say, you know what, I'm done trying to do it on my own. I'm going to look to the power of Christ in the cross who simply submitted himself to the Father's will and then gave himself for me. And I'm going to say, God, I, I can't do it. I can't do it on my own like we talked about last week. We, we can do what we've been called to do, and that's it. Everything else is on God. If he doesn't do it, it's not going to happen. Lord, this is, this is on you. I can't do it. I can do what you've called me to, and that's it. Everything else is out of my hands. Maybe this morning is the morning you need to say, God, I can't do it. This is on you. Show me your power in my life. As I live out the power of the gospel in my relationships, as I live out what Christ has done for me, as I'm reminded of the forgiveness I've been forgiven, help me to forgive those around me, be set free from that anger. Maybe this morning you need to examine your own life. Maybe you've been feeling like, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not a believer. I mean, look at all these other people. Look how they all got it together. Number one, they don't have it all together. They're just better at hiding it than you. But number two, don't, don't compare yourself to the people around you. Compare yourself to who you used to be before Christ got a hold of you. Look at the power of Christ in your life. Do you not know that Jesus is in you? Do you not know that he's working through you? Take a moment, examine yourself. Quit taking so much time to look at everybody else. Look at what he's doing in your life. Right now, maybe this morning, though, Christ is not in you. 
Maybe this morning as you examine your life and you think about it, you say, you know, I've never trusted on him. I've never put my faith in him. I've never begun to walk with him. Maybe this morning what you need to do is say, Lord, I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. I want to walk with you out of here today. If you would stand with us, and as you stand, I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we're going to sing. And as we sing, would you come? Father, I thank you. Lord, I thank you that you are good and, God, that we can trust you. God, I thank you for your love and your grace every day. God, help us to follow you this morning. God, if you're working in someone's heart this morning, God, I pray that they wouldn't be able to leave here until they get right with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.